Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. As we enter the final lap or the final chapter of this magnificent section of Scripture, and we see some very familiar scenery, if you will, we hear Paul ask a a question, a familiar question, in verse 1 of Romans 11. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, if you've been with us for a number of weeks since the beginning of Romans chapter 9, this is familiar to you because it's basically what Paul keeps asking again and again in 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. He opened chapter 9 stating the issue, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He stated again at the end of that chapter, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. And now here again in Romans chapter 11, we hear him addressing the issue of Israel's failure to respond to the gospel, to God's law, to righteousness, or whatever it might be, and And in verse 11, you see the same theme brought up again, the failure of Israel. Verse 15, he mentions it again. In verse 17, again. And down in verse 23 and verse 25, over and over and over again, you see Paul bringing up this issue and building and really intensifying as he moves toward the end of the chapter. And he is determined to make sure Now, you and I have a correct understanding on this issue. His aim is at thoroughness and at depth in our understanding because he senses that this is not peripheral. This is not something that is secondary. It is essential because the issue of God's faithfulness to Israel, literally traces the storyline of the Bible. The Old Testament is really a whole series of stories with one common plot line, at least one, of whether or not Israel would be snuffed out. Would they be wiped out by famine? Would they be eradicated by Egyptian slavery? Would they be pinned against the Red Sea and destroyed by an Egyptian army? Would they die wandering in the wilderness or be defeated by Canaanite armies when they entered the promised land? Would they implode from internal corruption and idolatry? Would they be uh, obliterated by foreign powers and invasion? Would they be extinguished? by Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, over and over again, this is the tension that is in the Old Testament behind so many of the stories. Whether it's David taking on Goliath or Abraham and Sarah wrestling with barrenness or Esther boldly going into the presence of a king or Nehemiah building a wall, all of these things are are woven, or I should say, are painted against the backdrop of the continuation of the existence of the distinctiveness of Israel. The preservation of a particular nation of people, a bloodline, and their unique role in the plan of God. And without that, 
understanding, Scripture doesn't make sense. It's essential. And so as you read throughout the Old Testament, you hear, you hear this theme arising about God being faithful on one hand or casting out on the other hand. Whether God would cast aside Israel or whether or not He would keep His word to them. At times it comes with warnings as in 2 Kings 21 verse 14. I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and I'll give them into the hand of their enemies. And they'll become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they've done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day that their fathers came out of Egypt even to today. Or you read it in chapter 23 of 2 Kings. The Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight as I've removed Israel and I will cast off this city that I've chosen. Or you hear the psalmist lamenting, Psalm 44, you have rejected us and disgraced us. Psalm 60, oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses, you've become angry against us. Psalm 74, oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture, he says. Or very symbolically, you have times like Jeremiah Where God commands the prophet, he says, cut your hair off and cast it away from you. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. And this is the tension that comes all the way through the Bible. God either casting aside his people or remaining faithful to them. But often you hear him reassuring them. In the midst of all this, as in 1 Samuel 12, when he says in verse 22, I will not forsake my people for my great namesake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Or Psalm 94, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Or Isaiah 41, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the furthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you, I will not cast you off, do not fear. So you hear this language all the time. God casting off His people. Scattering them among the nations. Or reassuring them that it won't be forever. So when Paul asked this question, when he asked this question at the beginning, has God rejected his people? He's simply picking up the very familiar lament, very familiar language that is running all the way through the Old Testament. He's just adding his voice to that long line of queries about God's faithfulness to his people. Nothing new in that sense. Nothing new about the question, nothing new about the theological conundrum. In fact, he may very well be thinking specifically of a passage in Jeremiah 31 where God uses some of the strongest language and the language particularly from the Greek version of that is very similar to Paul's wording here. And God uses this language to reaffirm His commitment After so many years, so many centuries, so many disappointments with Israel, he says this in Jeremiah 31, right in the middle of what we know as the 
the new covenant. He says, the Lord says, who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, that is the sun and the moon, the waves, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. And then he says in the next verse, thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured, if the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. This is the language Paul uses, casting off, rejecting the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. So he's asking the question, could it be that God has finally done that? Could it be that his patience has reached an end? Could it be that it has been exhausted? Can, can it be that his patience only goes on for so long? That might be what some of Paul's readers were thinking, especially in light of what he just said, the very final verse of chapter 10, just right before that, when he spoke, when he quoted from Isaiah 65, Speaking of Israel, how all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is what God has continually done. This is the way Israel has continually been. This has always been their response. This has always been their nature toward God. Disobedient and contrary. And Paul has made... Mention about how even in his own day they have resisted God's righteousness. They have turned against his Messiah. They might read everything that Paul said about Israel's hardness of heart. About their obstinance. And they might conclude that this must be then. When God finally cast them aside. But no sooner than that idea rises in their minds. than he categorically rejects it. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Using the language of Jeremiah, has God cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done? Absolutely not. Not until the sun stops shining and the stars cease to give their light, the waves no longer pound the shores. Not until the universe is fully measured could that ever happen, he says. They may be disobedient. They may be obstinate. They may be resistant to the Messiah. But God has not rejected them. Now, of course, when you ask that question, has God rejected Israel? uh, You really need to ask, which Israel? Because Paul has already told us back in chapter 9, verse 6, that there is an Israel within Israel. He says in that verse, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So there is, in other words, there's a physical Israel, and then there is what is sometimes referred to as a spiritual Israel, a regenerate Israel within that physical Israel. There are those who are physically descended from Israel, but they're not all The spiritual Israel. They don't all belong to that second Israel. 
Those who have faith, those who really have trusted in God, those who are, as Paul said earlier, true Israelites. As Paul first began to address this issue back in chapter 9, he pointed out that this was vital, that we understand this distinction, that within Israel there's always been that distinction. Those Jews who are Jews only outwardly, and those Jews who are Jews inwardly whose circumcision is not just outward with the hands, but is of the heart. This is the language of Deuteronomy 30. This is what God has always said. This is what has always been true. God has always made clear that He wanted those kinds of Jews. So we have to, of course, recognize that there are two different kinds of Jews. There are, there are regenerate Jews and there are unregenerate Jews. And Paul has spoken of them. But the question here is, when Paul speaks of God casting off Israel, which of these two Israels is he talking about? If it was the spiritual Israel, those within Israel who are elect, it would really be pointless to ask the question, wouldn't it? Nothing Paul has ever said would lead you to believe that God would do such a thing. Where would that notion come from? Everything he has said would lead us to expect that God would save all of those Jews who place their faith in him. As he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But it's really not about those spiritual and elect Jews that he's talking about. Because the context makes it clear. He's asking about the nation, the physical Israel. The very same one that he just mentioned in the previous verse, the one that is obstinate and disobedient. He's asking, in other words, about physical Israel, about the nation of Israel. Or we could, we could even say, uh, rephrase it this way. Has God rejected the nation of Israel who has spurned him? Has he rejected this obstinate people? And his emphatic answer, by no means. And throughout Romans 11, he's going to revisit and restate the question several ways in order to make it crystal clear to us that while there is a rejection of God in the current time, it doesn't mean that God has rejected Israel as having a special place in his plan of redemption. There is a, at the present time, a A rejection of God, but Paul will tell us throughout the remainder of chapter 11, it's really, you could summarize chapter 11 in two themes, that the rejection on the part of Israel is only partial. And then secondly, that that partial rejection is only temporary. That's it. That's the message of Romans chapter 11. The rejection of Israel. Christ on the part of Israel is only partial, and that partial rejection is only temporary. And that really is Paul's answer to whether or not God has finished with the work of his people. As I said, Paul is continuing to address this issue because it is vital It's vital to our understanding of God. It's vital to our understanding of the Bible. It's vital to our grasp of the gospel. It's vital 
to everything Paul has been saying about faith and grace. Because to formulate a low view of the nation of Israel is to have a low view of grace. To formulate a low view of the nation of Israel is to have a low view of God's election. Because this is all about God's character. Where he says over and over and over again throughout the scripture, when he declares something, he always brings it to pass. He will not go back on his word. It is impossible for God to lie. He says it throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah 40 through 49. He reiterates that again and again. He declares the things that are from old. He brings them to pass. And this is the validation that he is God. And just as importantly, this isn't just about God's character. This is about grace. This is about the message that God was sending through the nation of Israel. That when he establishes his election, when he determines to show his kindness, no failure, no rebellion, no disappointment will cause him to cease from that commitment. This is, in other words, this is the message of grace. And if it's true... That God ever set his affection on the nation of Israel. If that is true. For him then to withdraw that affection would be to undermine the very fabric of grace. It would be to undermine the whole idea of unconditional election. The whole idea of preserving love and the whole foundations of the gospel itself. The issue here in other words is that the Israel Paul's talking about clearly deserves to be cast off. They clearly deserve to be set aside. But they won't be. And Paul's going to explain to us why they won't be. And he's going to show us in time that they've been in this position before many times. And in all those times, God has continued to demonstrate his grace to Israel as his particular people. Now he's going to introduce this grace to us in the first six verses of this chapter in three distinct ways. He's going to do it with the personal proof of his own experience and then with a a premise on which all of this is founded, a parallel he's going to take us to in the Old Testament. And then finally, the principle that's demonstrated through all of it. And each one of these giving us keys to understanding God's unending grace to Israel and therefore His unending grace to us. So to begin with, in verse 1, Paul gives us the proof of what he's saying from his personal experience. A proof from his personal experience. I mean, the most obvious evidence that God has not rejected his people is the one that's right in front of us. If we're reading the scriptures, we're reading scriptures that have been written by a Jewish man. And the evidence of Paul's own example, God had included at least one Jew in his faithfulness to his people. And he isn't a questionable example, not outside, uh, not some outsider, not some proselyte, not some Johnny-come-lately. He is claiming 
uh, to be just as authentically and thoroughly Jewish as anyone. His pedigree is impeccable. He was, in other words, as Jewish as it gets. He says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Just in case you think he's speaking in spiritual terms, he clarifies what he's talking about here. I'm not just saying I'm spiritually of Abraham. I'm not just saying I'm spiritually an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am purely Jewish. And yet, my life demonstrates the real work of God in bringing me to faith in Christ Jesus. That's the implication. But don't imagine that his faith in Christ was because he was somehow predisposed to this or that he somehow is more open or was more open or more receptive to the gospel than all the other Jews. You would never have found anyone more opposed to Christ than Paul. He describes himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Formerly I was a blasphemer a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul's example, in other words, involved not only him being a Jew, but it was representative of the Jews in every way. He was a blasphemer in the sense that he denounced Christ. He was a persecutor in the sense that he acted against God's people. He was insolent, obstinate, disobedient. However you want to translate that, he was unbelieving. But, he says... I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul understood, in other words, that the grace that was operative in his life was not only for him, but it was also for others. It was a demonstration of God powerfully working through the most hateful, and opposed person to the truth of the gospel. And in Romans 11, he has that same sense. God's grace towards him is an example of God's grace toward the Jewish people. An example of his grace in general. His personal example demonstrates at least one Jew who God's power overcame all hard-heartedness, all hatred, all blindness... All opposition to the gospel, it overcame all of that and redeemed him for God's purposes. Some of you, by the way, are Jewish. And whether you realize it or thought about it or not, you are here with us today as a living example of God's ongoing commitment to Israel. You have been redeemed. God has overcome enormous barriers in your family, in your culture, bringing you to Himself. And He did it, at least partly, 
as a living and visible demonstration of his ongoing commitment to his people Israel as a nation. And so Paul gives his personal example here. Someone might object, you know, well, one beanstalk doesn't make a garden, right? It's kind of like me, you know, I hit a really good golf shot and suddenly I start thinking PGA Tour. (laughs) We'd be foolish to jump to that conclusion. Well, perhaps that's why Paul restates the proposition in verse 2 in more emphatic terms. And it takes us to a second key understanding of God's unending grace to Israel. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And in doing this, Paul takes us now from his personal example to the premise of God's relationship to begin with. The premise of his relationship to Israel. And he's emphatically countering this notion that God would set them aside. And he's doing it by drawing attention to his foreknowledge of Israel. He's not introducing some subgroup. Don't imagine that he's suggesting that while God rejects most Jews, there's this small subgroup, those whom he foreknew that he's not rejecting, That's not the idea behind the word foreknow. He's not saying I'm rejecting most of them, but those I foreknow I'm not rejecting. That's not what the idea is here in the context, and it's not the idea behind Paul's statement. He's talking about his people, God's people, the nation of Israel, the same ones that he talked about in verse 21 of chapter 10 who were obstinate and unbelieving, the same ones who raise the question, who it's raised the question about in, in um, chapter 11, verse 1. If you understand this word for no, to be introducing some special group, some elect group of Jews, it doesn't make any sense why God would ever reject them or why you would even need to ask the question. Because they're not the ones who are obstinate. They're not the ones who are disobedient. The believing Jews, that is. His theme in this chapter, flowing out of chapter 10, going all the way through chapter 11, his theme in this chapter, we might say, is disobedient Israel. What about them? What is God doing with disobedient Israel? This is Israel, we might say, as a corporate identity. As he'll go on to say in verse 11, the ones who have stumbled. That's not a description of elect Israel. Or in verse 12, the ones who have trespassed. That's not a description of elect Israel. Or the ones who have, in verse 15, rejected Christ. Or the ones in verse 17 who have been broken off. None of those are descriptions of elect Israel. They're all descriptions of Israel corporately as an entity before God. This is Israel as a corporate entity and God, Paul says, has not rejected them. Why? Because he foreknew them. Because he foreknew them. We've talked about this word before, especially back in chapter 8. We looked extensively throughout several Old Testament and New Testament passages to frame in our minds what this word really means. And we saw that it doesn't mean simply to know something ahead of time. 
It doesn't refer to God knowing something about Israel ahead of time. Because in reality, what he knew about Israel, even when he set his love on them, he declared it from the very beginning. What he knew about Israel was that they would be incredibly rebellious, that they would turn aside again and again to idolatry. He knew that they would continually spurn him, that they would spurn his word, that they would spurn his prophets. And even that one day they would spurn the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He knew all of that ahead of time when he set his love on them. And yet still he did it. That's the idea behind foreknow. You hear it come out beautifully in passages like Amos chapter 3 verse 2. When God says of Israel, you only have I known among all the families on the face of the earth. You only have I known among all the families on the face of the earth. And he's not suggesting that God had no idea that there are other people around. And one day he just sort of stumbles around, whoa, did you know there are people in Africa? Wow! That's not what he's saying. He's not suggesting that God wasn't aware of their existence. What he's saying is that you, Israel, apart from every other national group, apart from every other ethnicity, you, Israel, I have set my special affection on you apart from everyone else. Among all the other tribes, among all the other nations, among all the other ethnicities, God chose the ethnic people of Israel to be His special people. Deuteronomy 7, 6, God said it to them, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you or chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and He is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Deuteronomy 10. Behold, the Lord your God, uh, excuse me, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and he chose their offspring after them. You above all the peoples as it is this day. These weren't promises just to a few individuals. These weren't promises just to a few people. This was promises to Israel as a corporate entity in distinction from all the other corporate entities on the face of the earth. The other nations, the other peoples. God foreknew Israel in the sense that He set His love on them. This word know, as as we saw before, has the idea of entering into a relationship of intimacy and exclusivity. Such as when a man knows his wife in marriage. God set up an exclusive kind of relationship with Israel that He didn't have with any other entity, any other nation, any other people. And the the question that Paul's grappling with 
is has God rejected that? Has he rejected that special relationship with this people apart from all other peoples on the face of the earth? The people whom he foreknew. And his answer is no. God has not. Why? Because his foreknowledge is irrevocable. His foreknowledge is irrevocable. Or as Paul will say down in verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And that includes most certainly the gift of his foreknown love. For God, in other words, to make all of those promises to Israel, the way that he made them, to make it clear that it was exclusive to them apart from all other nations and all other peoples, On the face of the earth. And then to go back on that promise. Would do irreversible damage to his name and his reputation. It would undermine the whole idea of unconditional election. And suddenly bring into question. If God's election of others might very well be revoked. That idea has to be rejected. Simply on the basis, on the premise of the nature of God's foreknowledge. Now Paul understands in all this that the current situation is an apologetic against him. He understands that the current situation of his day did not necessarily give a lot of evidence to what he's saying. Current situation in our own day is no different. But it's been one of the greatest challenges throughout all of Scripture to believe that in spite of all of Israel's obstinacy and disobedience and resistance, that God would fulfill His promises, His covenants, when all visible evidence would point in the opposite direction. Which takes us to Paul's third point, a third key to understanding God's unending grace to Israel is the parallels with biblical history. The parallels with biblical history. Paul wants to point out that the current situation is not something that has never been faced before. Jews in the past had to face the same realities over and over and over again that many of their brethren, many of their countrymen were not faithful. They were not believing. And it may have even shaken their confidence in God's plan It may have brought them to places of despair. It may have shaken them to their very core. But God always demonstrated through all of that that He had not totally given up on Israel. And He takes us, Paul does, to one of the most well-known examples in Israel's history, the story of Elijah. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? You should have known. You should have seen this. Nothing I'm saying to you is brand new. It's right there for you in front of Scripture if you would just read it for what it says. And what does it say? That Elijah, he appealed to God against Israel. What does it mean, against Israel? How could Elijah appeal to God against Israel? What he's saying is, is that Elijah had given up on Israel. Elijah had given up on 
on physical, national Israel. Why? Because all of, he thought, the believers were gone. This was happening in a particular period of time when Ahab had killed all of the prophets in Israel and Jezebel, his wife, was threatening now to send search parties out to do the same to Elijah. An extermination, a genocide, if you will, of all faithful Jews. It's a low point in Israel's history and in Elijah's life personally, maybe the lowest point in the history of Israel. Elijah flees into the wilderness, he sits down in dejection, and he pours out his complaint to the Lord. He said, we read there in Kings, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah just wanted to die. He was fed up with Israel. He was sure this was the end. But the Lord takes him out and has him stand in front of a mountain. And he sends, we're told, a strong wind, a whirlwind, that blasts in front of him and shakes the rocks. And then he sends an earthquake that rattles the ground. And then he sends... A blazing fire, presumably consuming all things around him. And after the fire, it says, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him. God was preparing Elijah He wanted Elijah to understand something. That God doesn't always accomplish His ways in that which is most visible or powerful. It's not always in a whirlwind. It's not always in an earthquake. It's not always in a raging fire. It may be in just a still, small voice. There may not, in other words, be a powerful contingency within Israel in Elijah's day. In fact, in that case, there were only 7,000 people. Among all the millions of people within Israel, there were only 7,000. A low point in Israel's history. They were, you might say, just a whisper of people remaining. But God was going to preserve his ongoing work through them. This was key to Israel's history. He could have obliterated them, could have wiped them out, could have just turned to other people who were believing. Elijah had in his own lifetime seen Gentiles turn to faith. This was one of the key things that was so controversial in Christ's teaching, how he brought up those Gentiles who were believing through Elijah's ministry. But he wasn't going to do that. 
And it was often like this in Israel's history. Time and time again, the majority of Israel was proving to be disobedient to the Lord, and yet he continued to work. And nowhere in the Old Testament was anyone ever led to believe or to conclude that because of the smallness of number that God was going to set aside his plan of faithfulness. In fact, he just kept reiterating and reiterating. So that you come near the end of Old Testament history to Jeremiah 31, speaking to the captives in Babylonian captivity about a new covenant that's yet to come. And thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, a fixed order of moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. It's a verse we read earlier, but it comes powerfully to a group of people who had been decimated, whose country had been basically wiped from the face of the earth. They were reduced, we're told, in the prophets to just a few goat herders on thorny hills, untended farms, a wasteland. And yet God was telling His people, even at that, after all of their disobedience, after all of their obstinacy, after all their rejection, He was telling me, look, as long as the sun is shining, And the stars give light. Israel will continue. Paul says there in Romans chapter 11, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Things were not as bad as Elijah's day. It would seem, at least from the book of Acts, that there were a good many more than just 7,000 believing Jews in Paul's day. There's a remnant, he says, even at the present time. And this is consistent with what we have always seen in Israel's history. Inasmuch as God continued the nation of Israel through a remnant throughout all of its days, in the same way, he says, it is happening today. There's no need for an adjustment to our understanding of God's plan. There's no need for a replacement. This is the way God has always worked, preserving His plan through a remnant. And there existed in Paul's day, even as there is in our day, Jewish believers. They exist in the church. They have been there. They've always been there. Now, 2,000 years later, amazing. You have all these ancient peoples, all these ancient uh, cultures, all these ancient languages that have passed away. And the Jews are still here. Believing and still in the church, a remnant being preserved. And the reason for this, Paul says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Makes me think, by the way, of the people who are always writing and pontificating about the end of the church. This happens, it seems, in cycles every 
10 years or so, someone writes a book and they're predicting that if the church doesn't do some massive adjustment, if it doesn't do something to make itself more relevant with the culture, if it doesn't do something to make itself uh, better positioned socially, it's going to be absolutely snuffed out. And you'll turn around in 50 years, it won't exist. As if it ever existed based on our relevancy, right? As if it was ever based on our works. As if the existence of the church had anything to do with us. If it was not based on grace and it's based on works. And if it's based on works and graces and grace, we might as well close shop and go home. We exist. We're here. We will always be here. Not because of what we do or don't do or any of those things, but because of grace. Which takes us to our final point, the principle that all of this magnifies. The reason God continues to do this, even though the majority of Jews have rejected Him, is because of grace. He's not preserving the remnant of Israel because they had been the most faithful. They had proved themselves most open. They proved themselves worthy. He is doing it He is preserving the nation of Israel in spite of rebellion, in spite of rejection. Why? To demonstrate, to demonstrate that the fulfillment of His promises is not based on works. What greater demonstration could you have? In fact, think about it this way. If God had done the opposite... If God had done the opposite, what would the conclusion be? That he's really concerned with works after all. If he makes all these promises to Israel, he's going he's he's to set his love on them apart from every other nation on the earth. And then, after all is said and done, they just went too far. They were just too rebellious. They just rejected the Messiah. And he just says, well, I'm done. I'm casting you aside. What would it say? It would ultimately say it's based on works. It's based on what Israel does. And it would mean a mortal death blow to the whole idea of God's grace. The whole idea of God's promise. If God didn't mean all that He said to Israel about the sun and the stars and the waves, if He didn't mean all that He said to Israel about choosing them above all the peoples on the face of the earth, if He didn't mean all that, then it's really all based on works and grace is no longer grace. You see, this is why Paul's so passionate that we understand this. It's why he's spending three chapters that we get this. It's why he put this right into the heart of his magnum opus on the gospel, the book of Romans. It's why the whole scripture is what it is. The tension from the 12th chapter of Genesis to the very end is whether 
at the end of the day, it's really going to be based on what Israel did or based on God who is gracious. And what Paul's telling us is that God's not setting aside his people. Why? Because of grace. It's the only thing that can explain it. It's the only thing that can make sense of it. It's the only thing when everything is said and done. When God finally does restore his people, it's the only thing that will be magnified. The grace of God working through obstinate people, bringing about his promises and his covenant. I'm grateful for that message. I'm grateful because of my own failures. I'm thankful that whenever I am not as faithful as I long to be and want to be, whenever I'm not as prayerful as I ought to be or as evangelistic as I'm called to be, whenever I'm not as gentle and kind and loving as Christ has been to me, I'm thankful that it's not by works. I'm thankful that God has given us a grand demonstration that when He makes a promise, He keeps it. When He elects and sets His love, it's forever. Well, let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, what a magnificent story You have told to us and are telling to us even through your ongoing work among the Jews. And Lord, we long for the day for it to be brought to full completion so that your grace, the glories of it will be magnified. The unsurpassing riches. Lord, how grateful we are, even though we are grieved by all obstinance and all disobedience, how grateful we are that even obstinate Israel has not been set aside. The Lord, you, as you say here in Romans, as you reiterate again and again throughout your scripture, you will bring your word to pass. And it will demonstrate your character. It will demonstrate your glory. It will demonstrate your grace. And so we pray, Lord, for that plan to be worked out. For your magnificence to be seen. Through the saving of your people, your ongoing grace even to us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.